They didn't realize we were seeds. They didn't realize you were seeds. They open doors so others can walk through them. Your legacy is every life you have ever touched. I'm Stella Sagliari and this is Salt the Podcast. Welcome to Salt the Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. My guest today is Nicole Römer from Neighborhood Feminists. Nicole is a writer and public speaker, and she is a coordinator at Neighborhood Feminists. As coordinator, she's in charge of the Dignity Kids Project, volunteer coordination, and logistics. The title of today's episode is Period Poverty, and we are talking about first and foremost this, period poverty, what it is, and neighborhood feminists and their work on the topic. But we are also talking about intersectionality, the white savior complex, Nicole's feminism, period, blood, and the shame and stigma around having our periods. We're talking about books and so much more. Nicole is full of knowledge, inspiration, and amazing energy. She has so much to share, And talking to her has been such a pleasure. We couldn't actually stop talking, which made this episode a very long one. The episode has also been recorded on Chios, Greece, my home islands, where I spend my summers, find my roots, and connect with my ancestors, my family, and my friends. Enjoy this episode. It is a special one. Please spread it, because what we discuss is so important, and what Nicole has to share is beautiful full of inspiration and positive energy. Thank you so much for tuning in. Enjoy it. Welcome, Nicole. I'm so happy that you're here with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm very excited about our conversation. And yeah, as always, I want to start with who are you? Who is Nicole? Tell us a little bit about yourself. So I am a 30-year-old writer and public speaker from Curacao. Um, I've been living in the Netherlands for 12 years now. I am always kind of working on multiple projects at once. So I have my writing, but then I kind of always roll into other things as well. And over the past year, the main thing has been activism. So I am very active and very vocal about feminism and about LGBTQIA plus rights and about anti-racism. And that has all kind of, it's all kind of morphed together where um, my passion for writing is now very much informed by my activism. Um, my work has now also turned into that. So yeah, I'm all the different interests that I have are kind of coming together in this little activist um, um, sphere that I'm in. A bit more personally, I, I also paint. So I spend a lot of my time just in general on creative pursuits. Uh, I'm learning to play the ukulele. I'm not very good, but I am trying. Nice. Um, I'm absolutely in love with dogs. Um, I do not have one, but I hope to have one one day when I have a larger apartment. And Yeah, I love the sunshine, you know, coming from the Caribbean. That's the thing I definitely miss the most living in Europe is 
uh, sunshine. So I definitely come alive in the summertime. Yes, I understand. I mean, being now in Greece, I remember again how it is to have sun all the time. Yeah. And yeah. What it does to you. Yes. Yeah. It makes such a difference. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you for the introduction. And of course, we will cover a lot of the things you've already touched upon throughout our conversation. And um, yeah, you said it already, your activism and your feminism is also reflected in your work life. You're a part of Neighborhood Feminists. And we want to hear all about it. I came across uh, the organization, I think, through one of my fellow classmates. And uh, yeah, reading about it, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then I decided to contact you. So tell us about the organization. So Neighborhood Feminists is an intersectional feminist organization. It's a nonprofit based in the southeast of Amsterdam. And it was founded at the end of 2019. Our three founders all knew each other already from other activist work that they were doing. They had worked on the Women's March, uh, the Netherlands. And as they kind of got to know each other and were getting more active in, in the community, they realized that one thing that they really missed was kind of the direct like action in on the local level in the community. And so they wanted to do something in Amsterdam for the Amsterdam community, but they weren't sure what. And one of them had heard of the term period poverty. And they decided that that might be interesting. And so they tried to figure out whether period poverty was an issue in Amsterdam, yes or no. And what's interesting is that when they asked around on the municipal level and kind of the, the higher up level of, of organizations and, and people and companies, um, the answer was no, period poverty is not an issue that is prevalent in Amsterdam. When they went to the shelter houses, however, and they actually spoke to the people living there and coming there and who are living in poverty, they found that it's a totally different story and that actually period poverty is very much something that is affecting people. So Neighbored Feminist was born out of that, out of that desire to kind of tackle something that was not being addressed by the municipality and, and by the country as, as a whole. It started with 11 dignity kits that were delivered to one shelter house. And dignity kits are a it's a it's a package, a monthly package that includes toiletries and uh, menstrual products. So mainly pads. And that's just how they started. It was just very, very humble beginnings. They first used all of their own money and just purchased these products, kept them at their at their homes and delivered 11 of these packages per month to one location. And yeah, now we're in July of uh, 2021 and they um, have expanded. We have now 110 people who we support monthly and that's in the form of dignity kits, uh, but also just kind of bulk supplies that we deliver to them. And that's in five different locations. So the growth has been huge. It's been very exciting. As I mentioned, you know, very humble beginnings, just kind of funding things out of their own pockets. And in 2019, they were able to then get uh, their official status as a, a nonprofit. And everything has kind of followed since then. This year was also kind of the year that our growth was propelled when they were able to hire their first employees. 
Um, so myself, I'm a coordinator at uh, Neighborhood Feminist since the 1st of February, and I work together with another coordinator. So that was a huge moment to be able to expand the team and thereby to expand what we're able to do, how many people we can reach, how many people we can help. And we are supported by a group of 13 volunteers. So that has also grown very quickly and, yeah, creates room for us to just be able to do more. And, yeah, we're as I mentioned, we're based in the southeast of Amsterdam. Our focus is the city of Amsterdam. And we currently, the five locations are located in the southeast, the east and the city center. But we are looking to expand to other sections of the of the city and hopefully in the future to other cities as well. Yes, yes. Very nice. I want us now to focus on three concepts that you touched upon. One is feminism, one is intersectionality, and the other one is period poverty. So what is feminism for you? Like, how would you define it? And what does it mean to you? For me, feminism is the recognition that we live in a patriarchal society and that power structures have been created in such a way that uh, cisgender men have typically traditionally held all the power, um, whereas women and other genders as well have been um, oppressed. So for me, fem feminism is not just about lifting the voice of, of the cisgender woman, of, of just women. Feminism is just truly tackling the patriarchy and recognizing that as long as we keep that, as we maintain that status quo and maintain those power structures, it will always be everybody living in a man's world. And that's, for me, feminism is tackling that and, and ensuring that we go towards a world where no matter your gender, we all have equal access, equal rights, equal opportunities. Yes. And a big part of neighborhood feminists and a big part of your feminism is also being intersectional, intersectional feminism. And it's a word that to me personally means a lot because I used to despise feminism because I associated it with privilege, elitism, Northwestern European women, women who look down on my mother. So it was never something that I would have identified with. But I always say feminism was tiptoeing aside me, like not giving up on me, knowing that she's a feminist, she needs me, you know? So when I, of course, it was not just coming across the concept of intersectionality, but coming across it and reading about it made a big change in how I started to see feminism. And it would be great because a lot of people don't know what it means. And it has become also a buzzword. Now you, you can have bags with it and mugs and all kinds of things, stickers. Um, but it would be good that you share with the audience what does actually intersectional feminism mean, like as a definition, and then also share with us a practical example from the work that you do on the ground where you take an intersectional approach. Yeah. So, so I, I, I want to start with, first of all, I can really, I would really echo your experience because that's how I felt as well for a long time. That kind of hesitation to call myself a feminist because the feminism that I saw around me was so linked to just absolute privilege. And it was once I learned about intersectional feminism, which was actually for me not very long ago, that was only two years ago that I even heard the term and took the time to then find out, well, what does that term mean? And that was when I kind of realized like, oh, the reason that feminism has never worked for me 
is because feminism, the feminism I was encountering was white feminism. I am a person of color. So the white feminism that I was encountering just by definition was never actually including me and including my experiences. So intersectional feminism is the understanding that we have multiple identities and those identities are all interlinked. So when you look at the experiences of a white cisgender woman and how what the kind of issues are that she experiences and therefore how those those experiences shape her feminism you're like you're looking at a completely different experience than for example that of a person of color or for example of a trans woman who is a person of color because the trans woman who's a person of color is also has her identity as a trans person and her identity as her racial identity that inform the way that the world sees her and that therefore contribute to how she moves through the world and what the things are that she needs to to tackle. Um, So intersectional feminism is recognizing and understanding that these different forms of oppression, they compound, they build on each other. And so when you look at the solutions or, or, or the battles um, that a, a certain person is fighting, they can be completely different than somebody else because they may have extra compounding forms of oppression that affects them in their daily lives. For me, that was just like, like learning that and understanding that for me, just completely, I mean, it blew my mind and it opened, opened my mind to feminism in a way I had never been open to it before because it created space. Um, it created space for me personally, but you know, as you said, like in in your experience, for example, where it's like, how how can I relate to this feminism when this feminism doesn't even include my mother or myself or my friends or whoever? And so, intersectional feminism for me has really kind of opened those doors to feeling included and feeling like there is space for me on the kind of feminist platform, and there is space for me to speak about my experiences and there is validity in my experiences as living at these different intersections. For me personally, it's been interesting to see my identity shift and and develop over the years. As I mentioned, you know, I, so I'm a cisgender woman. My, um, perhaps it's important for me to mention, indeed, my, my pronouns are she, her, and uh, I'm a, I'm a person of color. I um, am, am, very mixed race, and I'm queer as well. So for me, I live at those various intersections. And that makes my experiences very different to, for example, a cisgender woman who is uh, heterosexual. In our work at Neighborhood Feminists, that was the thing that drew me to the organization so much, was seeing that intersectional feminism truly being practiced. It's like a practice what you preach uh, approach. And some of the ways that that manifests itself is the fact that when we look at the people who we um, support, their needs are central to everything that we do. Their needs inform how we behave. And what do I mean with that is when you look at period poverty, uh, so so what we do, I mentioned the dignity kits, right? So what we are doing there is we're doing service provision. We provide products to people to fill a need that that they have. But what products do you provide? One of the main questions we get all the time is, you know, why do you provide 
pads that are disposable. So, you know, there are nowadays, there are all these reusable options on the market. You can use menstrual cups. You can use uh, washable uh, pads or washable period underwear. And while those are all very valid options, and while we love the environment as much as anybody else, this is where the intersectional feminism comes into play. And this is where the needs of the people come first. So the people that we support are primarily undocumented migrants and uh, refugees. And so when you're looking at how to support these people, it's not just feminists supporting other feminists. It's also feminists looking at what are your lived experiences and what are the compounding forms of, of oppression that you experience? What are the intersections that you live at? A cisgender woman who is a refugee has a whole wealth of experiences that shape how she moves through the world and that shape, for example, how she manages her menstruation. So when we looked at these, these communities and when we asked, what do you need? What can we do for you? The request was very simple. We want disposable pads. And why are they, uh, why is there a preference for disposable pads is because of various reasons. A lot of the people that we support do not have uh, standard uh, or stable housing. So um, they're homeless, which means that they don't always have um, regular access to water. Not having regular access to water means you simply cannot hygienically use a reusable item. Another thing is trauma, um, be that sexual trauma or just the, the more general trauma of having to flee your home country and come to a new place and navigate all the legalities and all of these things. When, when these people are, are processing that trauma, there's very little mental space to then learn how to use a new kind of product and to learn how to use or to learn how to manage your, your period in a completely new way. So these are things that then and, and the final thing is, is the cultural differences regarding um, product usage. Uh, when you look at tampons or period cups, you know, these are products that are used internally and it's just not something that is done in every culture. And so when we, as intersectional feminists say, we want to provide a service, we want to support you with something, the only way to do so in an intersectional way is to take into account the cultural differences the experiences and the preferences that um, the people that we support give us and, and, and express to us. So that's how um, I kind of fell in love with neighborhood feminists was I saw that and I realized, okay, this is feminism that is actually truly intersectional and is actually including people and is actually looking at the things that we don't know and allowing our actions to be informed by the people who actually have that lived experience and who know about the intersections that they live at and that know how those intersections affect them. Two things. I already want to give you a big hug, actually. <laughs> I hope once I'm back in the Netherlands, we can go for a walk because it is so beautiful what you're saying and it's so important and it's, it's really like amazing. And it also made me think of myself because I never used a tampon like ever. Mm. Maybe I tried once and I was like, no, because also, and it's the reason is the culture, how I was brought up, you know, that 
this was something. No, you, you don't put anything, you know? Exactly. So, yes, yes. And, and, and you know, too often, it, my, my, in my opinion, too often we operate in this world based on our own, our own experiences and our own assumptions. And while it's understandable to operate based on your own experiences because they are your experiences, I think that that what I've learned above all else is ask people what they need, ask people what they want, because I do not know what someone else's lived experience is. And so for me to impose upon that person, I'm going to help you, but I'm going to do it in this way is just is just not okay. It just is not okay. And so we we and that's what you see with charity, um, you know, the typical kind of historical way that charity works is 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 that it's going to another country and saying, hey, there's a problem here. I have the solution. But did you ask them whether that solution will work for them? And and then we see that the solutions actually have adverse effects, et cetera, et cetera. And that's something that, you know, when you look at charities, it's an issue. And when you look at feminism, it's been an issue. And that is just quintessential white feminism at work. And that I'm happy to see that so many people are moving away from that and are moving more towards the space that, for example, neighborhood feminists operates from, which is intersectional feminism and just having those conversations, asking people, you know, I want to acknowledge that I don't know everything. What do you know? And what can I do for you? And how can I do it in the way that you will be most comfortable, will be best served, etc. Yeah, I I love this organization for for that reason. I really do. <laughs> and I mean, you already touched upon it. It's actually this white savior complex. Yeah. True. That you yeah. are fighting against. Yeah, exactly. We always kind of have in the back of our minds that that part, you know, that that idea of okay, you do not want to be just another white savior. And that's something that informs our Dignity Kits project, but that also informs other projects. So one thing that we're working on is is expanding to to other projects as well. You know, we we're working on on tackling period poverty, but there's many other things we want to do. But when we do that, we always need to ask ourselves, okay, we have an office here in the southeast of Amsterdam. But none of us are actually from here. None of us are born and raised in this part of the city. And so any project that we do in this part of the city needs to be done in communication with, in conversation with the people who are born and raised here. Because otherwise, it's again, this white savior kind of complex. I'm going to come to the southeast of Amsterdam and I'm going to fix it. I'm going to show you. You can't fix something if you don't know what what the experiences are in that place. Um, so that's something that we're very careful about and and constantly checking ourselves on that. And yeah, so that's that's something that we're always thinking about. And with the white savior complex as well, you know, we just have certain certain strict rules for ourselves. We do not ever, 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 never ever share the names of people we support their photos. That's just not something that we do. And, and, and we are fierce about that. I had, I was approached just some time ago by a news agency, um, a, a reporter 
who wanted to, you know, had come across our work and wanted to feature our work and who immediately asked me to speak to the some of the people who we support and supply with products and to ask for their experiences and to potentially share photos. And then I'm fierce. Then I'm like, no, this is a hard no, hard no. And let me tell you why, you know, and then I'll explain. And and some some places will respect that and they'll understand that. And in this case, they did. And some places don't fully understand because there is that kind of historical white savior um, um, complex and approach. Yes, I, I listened to an interview that you gave and, I, and th you mentioned that as well there with the photos. And I really loved it because mm. is this, I mean, most of the time you see, you know, kids in Africa, I mean, whatever Africa yep. is, you know, not even the countries, Africa yeah. and some white people helping them, um, giving them food or giving them um, surgeries. And yeah, th there is an office close to my house. I think it's a Doctors Without Borders, but I don't really know what it is, to be honest, because I quite often see people just hanging out there. But the whole um, glass, the windows are full of stickers with black children and doctors. And we pass there with my children. If we want to take the tram and if we pass there, they ask me one day, mom, uh, Africa is poor, right? Um, they don't have food, no? And they don't have medicine. They don't, they don't have this because they were seeing these photos, you know? And of mm -hmm. course they have seen also other things. And then I have, and I mean, I'm happy that they asked me these questions because it gives me moments where I can explain things to them that it's not like that and what these images do. But they do this already to my kids that are very young. And we see these things all the time and forever. Like, And I'm really happy that you're not doing that, you know, or the, the poor refugee carrying the baby. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. and, and it's also often used for marketing purposes. Absolutely. And, absolutely. Yeah. Because there's just, there is just still too much of our society that is operating from that space. And so, you know, when, when, when you, when you look at marketing, why do, why is this used for marketing purposes? Because so many people like it. It makes them feel important. And quite honestly, it reinforces their white supremacy. It reinforces their, their place in society and the way that they are able to feel good about themselves. Because look at me, I am this person who is, for example, white, who lives in this privileged society, and I get to donate my money to this poor black person. And now, and look at me, look at how good I am and, and how much power I have. And it's it's truly a reinforcement of of white supremacy that is just so inherent in our global society and which really needs to be taken out at the root. And and, you know, that's something that we here at Neighborhood Feminists also we are so vocal about all of that. We don't we don't hold back when it comes to racism, when it comes to Islamophobia, when it comes to anything like that, we are out there and we're saying it because these are the things that too often are not said for too many generations. We've not been wanting to have these difficult conversations, but guess what? Time's up and the time yeah. has come for us to do it now because we cannot keep raising, for example, kids who, who, who walk past that window and see those stickers and become convinced that this is normal, that this is the way it should be. What we need to do is raise kids, as you just said, who ask like, wait, but why is this? And, and who we explain to, this is not the way that um, 
that it is, and this is not the way that it should be. Something as well that I, I, I didn't mention before, but that is important to note in neighborhood feminists and kind of, you know, the fact that we're active in a city like Amsterdam is there is such an assumption, the, the, the mere assumption that period poverty would not be an issue in Amsterdam is rooted in colonialism and white supremacy. Why? Because with the Netherlands being the Netherlands, being European, being this wealthy, wonderful country where everything is possible, there is an assumption that there is no poverty. And there is an assumption that these kinds of issues, and I'm doing air quotes, only happen in other countries. So when you talk about poverty, when you talk about period poverty, everyone will say, indeed, look at Africa. And as you just said, there won't even be mention of a country. They just look at a continent. Look at Africa. Look at South America. Look at India. Asia. That Exactly. That's where these issues happen. It's not here. And that's just rooted in white supremacy. And so when, when neighborhood feminists began, that was kind of our found, what our founders were realizing was, okay, but why is it then when we talk to these these you know, officials from the municipality that they say to us, no, no, it's not an issue here. That's for that, you know, set up, set up your organization, but go help the kids and the, the kids and the people who menstruate in Africa or something. And that is just an inherently flawed approach. And it's fascinating to me to, that when I have these conversations and when I tell people the work that I do, you know, people ask me, oh, where do you work? And I say this and that, and oh, what is it though? And I will mention the word period, the term period poverty. And the first question I get is, oh, what is that? And then the second question I get is, but why do you work in Amsterdam then? And it's fascinating to, to see that. And I love having those conversations because each person I speak to leaves there with the understanding that yes, even in a beautiful wealthy city like Amsterdam, there are people living in true poverty and there are people experiencing as a result of that period poverty. And the and for me personally with each person that learns that it's a slight it's a small win, you know, because totally. that's one person who's informed who might now inform someone else. And it's one person whose actions might now change or adapt and who might, for example, consider buying products sometimes and and donating them to to somewhere or or supporting our cause or whatever but these are the very interesting and that just goes to show again intersectionality you cannot talk about feminism without talking about colonialism without talking about the environment without talking about capitalism uh, capitalism without talking about able bodies versus less able bodies it's all intertwined and it's all about tackling these power structures that we have allowed to exist for way too long and essentially overthrowing a, a status quo this is the revolution <laughs> that's what it is it is yes it's fascinating and it, it it is that's what it is to for us to really you know achieve the things that that we are are fighting for with intersectional feminism it is really just overthrowing the whole system and starting anew. Yes. And that's also 
Um, because that's why I always ask the people I speak with who I know they're feminists, what is feminism for you? Because feminism is so much more. It is really about what you just described. It's also about cap fighting capitalism, fighting racism, not just sexism. It's about yeah. the environment. It's about many, many things. And Nicole, we already mentioned now many times spirit poverty. And yeah. maybe some of the listeners know what it is. Some just hearing those two words can make up something. But it's much deeper than maybe what we think it is. So it would be great if you could share with us what is actually period poverty. Yeah, true. That's a, that's a good one. <laughs> um, so period poverty is a lack of access to menstrual products, but it's more than that. It's also a lack of access to menstrual hygiene education, to toilets, to hand-washing facilities, and waste management. Similar to feminism and, and to, to all these kind of issues that we tackle in society, too often the, the understanding of period poverty is overly simplified. Period poverty is often defined as indeed, you know, not having enough money to buy period products. And that's true, but the not having enough money to buy period products comes oftentimes together with these other things that I've mentioned. You know, I kind of touched on it before, where if you don't have regular access to running water, it's significantly more difficult for you to manage your menstruation in a hygienic way. If you uh, do not have access to safe toilets, same story, it becomes more difficult. And also if you don't have enough knowledge, if you don't have enough um, um, understanding and insight into the processes happening in your body and how you can best manage them, it's that also forms a barrier. So period poverty manifests itself in multiple ways. And when you come up with solutions to tackle period poverty, you need to take those all into account. I've kind of mentioned that, you know, we, we do uh, service provision. We provide people with products because these people cannot afford to buy these products. But we also, in the back of our minds, know that this is, first of all, essentially a saviorist approach, and it's a Band-Aid on a larger problem. We cannot forever have organizations like Neighborhood Feminists providing products to people and think that that is the solution. Again, you know, I, I, I get very passionate about this. I'm like, overthrow the system. And it's true, though. That is what needs to happen is there needs to be a systematic change whereby people are able to access the things that they need and whereby they are able to manage their manage their menstruation. So some of the things that we do is, you know, the awareness building. Um, as I just said, you know, each person I speak to who 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 leaves that conversation knowing that period poverty is an issue, I count that as a win because perhaps they can look at their own city, their own country, and try and figure out whether or how many people are affected there and how they can help. So awareness building is one big thing. Awareness building also comes with kind of breaking down the stigma. One of the big things that is an obstacle in tackling period poverty and in discussing all issues related to menstruation and bodily functions, um, let's, let's make note of that as well, is stigma. You know, we, we, we hear it time and, and for years, you know, we've all seen the, the advertisements where your menstrual <laughs> pad was with the blue liquid coming onto it. And that's supposed to symbolize your period. And, and, Which you is know, not blue. 
which is not blue. So let's just be real about the fact that there's blood that comes out of my vagina and it's not beautiful and it can be pretty messy sometimes and it can be painful and this and that. And these are the conversations we need to have instead of always finding little cutesy sort of euphemisms and and metaphors for for what we're actually talking about, which is a vagina and a period. Um, So that's kind of what we do is the one thing is the awareness building and that tackling of the stigma. There's the service provision and there's also the advocacy side. Systematic change. Unfortunately, we do live in a society where Well, fortunately and unfortunately, there are rules and there are regulations and there are things that we need to follow. And so that systematic change needs to go paired with government intervention and and government support. And so behind the scenes of of the work that we do, we are in touch with government officials. um, We're in touch with the municipality of Amsterdam, and we're trying to make sure that eventually that change happens, whereby period poverty is tackled by the powers that may be who should be doing that, whose whose responsibility it is. And so ultimately the goal is, and I mentioned this to you before before this call, um, I love this word and I love this kind of ethos. Our ultimate goal is our own obsolescence. Our goal is for our organization no longer to have to exist because period products are being distributed by the state. So period poverty, you know, it's a complex issue. There's there's different ways in which it's experienced. And those different ways mean that you need to come up with different solutions and that it's not going to be a one solution fits all. Mm-hmm. You actually need to have this very like targeted, multi-layered approach to tackle all of those different issues, which, you know, as I mentioned, are like housing and safety and knowledge, um, teaching about things, improving education, improving awareness, tackling stigma. These are all things that we need to do in order to tackle the very complex experiences of people who, who experience period poverty. Yes. And also the fact about taxation of those products or the fact that we don't get them for free, or if you go to the supermarket or the drugstore, you will see, oh, the more ecological pads, let's say, cost five euros. And the ones full of perfume cost one euro. I mean, yeah. that's also something that, that is really bad and, and how much actually they're taxed. It's expensive. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so what you see is, so the taxes, it, it differs very much per country, of course. In the Netherlands, the tax is relatively low. I am inclined to say it's 9%. And period products basically are taxed in the same bracket as uh, like bandages, things like that. It's all taxed in a similar way. But in other countries, period products are still taxed as luxury items um, a lot of the time. And so that's a 21% tax that can be on these products, which is absurd. It's absurd because it's an essential. It's an essential product you need every single month. And then don't even get me into the issue of of the healthy kind of variants being very inaccessible because they're just truly far too expensive. There are two more things I want to touch upon. One is, and, and you mentioned it already, the whole shame around period, blood, 
Um, so I want us to talk about this and maybe also talk about it together. For instance, I've already explained to my sons that uh, I sometimes have my period. And uh, of course, I didn't go into the whole biological stuff, which to be honest, I'm not even sure I can do because I was never ex properly, ex it was never properly explained to me what is actually happening exactly in my body. But yeah. they know that sometimes I bleed. Um, when now I cannot go to the beach, I will not lie to them. I will say I have my period and they know what it means and they know what mm. it is. And um, they first they were like, really, does it hurt? Um, <laughs> what is happening to you? So I explained a little bit to them. And I also explained to them that by me having this, I could give life to you, you know, that it's, re it's related. So I had a conversation the other day with my cousin and she was like, why are you talking with your kids about it? They're way too young. Why don't you leave some things for later? And I'm like, for later? Like, what does it mean for later? And why? Yeah. Like, why can't I talk about certain things with them, like healthy eating, let's say, and not about that. It's part of me. It's part of my body. It's part of my life. And yeah, I do it. And I, I'm, I'm standing behind it and I find it important. And also what you said earlier, these advertisements with the blue blood, um, or about the beautiful smell. If you buy this product, <laughs> your vagina will smell like roses. Um, oh my God. Again, making you feel like it's something really bad. You need to hide, uh, yeah, right? So I want to talk a little bit about that. What do you have to say? Yeah, so I, I think that this one again, it's, gosh, where do I begin? Because <laughs> I, 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 there are so many parts of this there's so much to break down yeah. there and there's so much to actually rightfully be angry about. I get angry about mm -hmm. this because again, this is the systematic oppression of people with uteruses. It's a policing of our bodies, of how our bodies should be. And it's been happening for generations, hundreds of years. And Yeah, that I think that that is reason to be angry sometimes. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's fascinating that when it comes to childbearing, the uterus is seen as, well, as, as what it is, which is this incredible thing that is able to bear life, that is able to give life to every single human who walks on this earth. When we look, however, and when we talk about how that happens, there's the shame that ha that that is then um, projected onto that. You know, you hear it all the time, um, stories of childbirth. It's, it's always, it, you know, the framing as well of how we talk about childbirth is very, oh, let's talk about the stories of the person who gave birth yesterday and today is sitting with like hair perfectly brushed and makeup on and is just this beautiful Aphrodite who who is feeling wonderful and 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 is just shining and beautiful. Well, we don't want to deliver talk about, the baby like it's a pizza, you know. A delivery. Exactly. Yeah. What we don't want to talk about is the pain and is the 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 fluids. It's the 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 stitches that are necessary. The, cuts. the emotional roller coaster that happens. We don't want to talk about the exhaustion, everything. We 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 pick and choose how we want to discuss that as a society because in talking about childbirth in a real way we take away the how sexy the person is because the person is a sexual object an, an an object of lust and so while it is wonderful that life has been created in the uterus the creator is an object of lust and needs to always fulfill that facade 
which is rooted in a sexist patriarchal society and which I, for one, am done with. And that is something that you see with menstruation as well. Why is it that we cannot talk about menstruation as being what it is, red, dark sometimes, clumpy, painful, messy, it's not pretty, <laughs> it's messy, it's messy. And we don't want to talk about that. Why? Because again, the vagina and everything that has to do with the vagina that goes in or comes out is an object of sexual objectification and of sexual pleasure not for the person with the vagina, but for the person on the other side and, and, and well, for the man. And so these are things that have for such a long time informed the way that we talk about it and have just only increased and amplified this stigma and this shame around periods. Because, you know, a teenage girl, a teenage person will get their period and will feel dirty about that because it makes them, yeah, it, it's this kind of dual understanding of, oh, this makes me an adult now, but also this kind of rings in the era of sexual objectification, but I'm not supposed to show that I'm bleeding. And it's just this, this, this complicated series of experiences that are projected onto you by society. When we, when we, talk about periods, when we talk about uh, menstrual health, for example, in, in May, there's menstrual hygiene day. That's what it's called, menstrual hygiene day. And at Neighborhood Feminist, we kind of just like ugh, about that word because yes, you need to, everyone has the right to managing their menstruation in a hygienic way in the sense of not giving themselves uh, sicknesses or, or infections and things because they have to use a, a dirty rag to soak up the blood. So that hygiene, yes, we need to be able to safeguard that for everyone. But when, when we look at the framing around menstruation for, again, decades and, and centuries, actually, hygiene has always been the thing. It's, it needs to smell like flowers. It needs to be blue and, and translucent and perhaps have fairy dust and sprinkles in it. And so menstrual hygiene day, while it has very good intentions, makes me kind of a little, you know, uncomfortable because I'm like, it's again, reinforcing that understanding that everything that has to do with that area of the body needs to be clean and sterile and nice and whatever. And, hidden and so, also. And hidden. And so when we talk about menstrual hygiene day within neighborhood feminists, and when we share about it, we actually chose to call it menstrual health day, mm. because it's about maintaining everyone's health, everyone has a right to safe safety of their own health. And these are little things that we do when we talk about things uh, in, in, in with regards to how we frame them that I think can have an impact. Language has an impact on, on everything. Yes. And so when we stop talking about, um, yeah, blood coming out of my, you know, where, and we say my vagina, that has an impact. When we name things, what they actually are, oh, my uterus, my vulva, my whatever the part of the body is, whatever the, the, the issue is that you're describing, Say it, say it out loud, because these kinds of, of, of small changes contribute to that larger scale change um, and contribute to that kind of um, 
yeah, destigmatization. And I, I don't see why we can't start that at a young age. Um, yeah. You know, I, 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 I also mentioned this before this call, where one of our, one of our founders, you know, she has, she has a young child, and she has taught her child to refer to her vulva as her vulva and not as like I don't know what are the names that people come up with it's like Nuni and your um um Yoni and your I don't know what all these little cutesy puni and all this stuff that we come up with and it's like well well why are we when we do that when we teach even a two-year-old child when they ask Ma, you know mommy what's this called or, or, or three or four or ten or whatever age when when children begin to ask questions which they so often do why are we giving them a name that we have made up when there is a name for the thing they are asking us about which so, we wouldn't do for a leg right or our arm if they ask us what is that we wouldn't say some weird term for the arm exactly, or the nose exactly and i found that a beautiful a beautiful kind of example when when you know my my um my colleague said like yeah you know my my kid refers to it as her vulva when she's talking about her vulva she calls it her vulva and this is a young child and i find that impressive and yeah. i but i find that It's sad that I find that impressive because that's something we should have been doing all along. I grew up, I don't remember what I grew up calling it, but probably something random. And it's only now I'm 30 years old. And it's only now that if I have cramps, I'm not going to pretend that I'm totally okay. I will say, listen, I need to go grab a paracetamol because I'm bleeding from the vagina and my uterus is cramping like crazy. And I I'm going to faint if I don't take paracetamol, you know, and okay, you know, have that conversation, give yourself the grace of, of letting your body exist the way that it exists without shaming it and blaming it and doing all this stuff because we put our bodies through enough in this world. And I don't, I, and we put ourselves through enough in this world. And I don't think we need that extra kind of pressure and, and negativity to not be able to say things the way that they are. That's really beautiful what you said, that your body exists how it exists. Yeah. Thank you, Nicole. This is really, really inspiring what you just said. Seriously, thank you. Thank you for saying these things. I have so many questions. We are for sure already over the time. But um, you you also say people who menstruate. Yeah. And um, it would be nice if you can tell us why you say this. And also... Uh, about this campaign that I that I heard about that you do, that you have about asking questions about being open to making mistakes, which being open to making mistakes and evolving for me is also very feminist. If you can talk a little bit about that, yeah. So we, as as I, as you've heard me mention, of course, is I I always say people who menstruate. I I refer to the uterus or or a person with a uterus or what have you, and. The reason is again intersectionality. You know, it's it's the understanding that not all women menstruate and not all people who menstruate are women. So when we talk about menstruation, if we say, if we continue to just say women, 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 it's it excludes significant portions of society who identify as female, but who for reasons of health or or trauma or whatever are able, so physical health and or mental health are unable to menstruate and who are then just kind of excluded from this feminist conversation 
that does actually apply to them. Similarly, if you say women instead of people who menstruate, you exclude people who uh, menstruate who don't, don't identify as female, you know, gender non-conforming people, uh, the trans community. Um, there are many people out there who menstruate and who know the full breadth of what that entails, but who do not identify as female and who, who do not feel addressed when you say the word women. It's, and, and that is a learning process to learn again. There we come back to the power of language, you know, language changes things and the language that we use is also habitual. And, and so learning new language can take time. Yeah. So I'm definitely still learning. And so I, I am very, I am personally um, very much. And, and you may have gotten that already from what I said just now, you know, give yourself some grace, be kind to yourself while you learn, because you are going to mess up. Um, and I, I firmly believe in that. And so I was very happy to learn when I began working at Neighborhood Feminists and Neighborhood Feminists sees it in that way as well. So, you know, that we, the way that we put things out there is we're here to help you learn we have some information that we can share, ask us questions. And there is no question that, unless that question obviously has outright, very clear um, negative <clears throat> intentions, any question that is genuinely asked from a place of curiosity and wanting to learn more and know more, we are here with you to help you find that answer and to learn. So we really, the way that we put information out there and the way that we engage with people one-on-one in in real life but also you know on our social media because with the pandemic we kind of had to really engage on social media because everyone was in lockdown um but the way that we put ourselves out there on social media is that it's this is a collective learning process we're doing it together we are not here to name and shame you if you make a mistake if you say the wrong thing we're here to help you learn and we are continuing to learn as well And I think that that's a beautiful thing. And I think that that's something that we also need a little bit more of in this world, you know? What's your favorite book? (laughs) This is is such a difficult question. Um, I find myself always nowadays uh, picking one book, which is To Shake the Sleeping Self by Jedediah Jenkins. It was published in... What year would that have been? That would have been 2018. And that book, I love this book because it also, I have a personal connection to it. I have a personal story about it. It came to me in a time where I was very much kind of searching for myself and trying to find out who I who I was, where I fit in the world, what I wanted to do with my career. Um, I studied law, so I'm formally a lawyer and I, I did that work for some time, but it it wasn't my calling, it wasn't my passion. And you reach that space of having way too many questions and no idea how to find the answers. And this book kind of fell into my lap in that time. Um, Jedediah Jenkins is a writer. He um, is uh, American and he is a gay man from a very religious family. And he writes this book Uh, to shake the sleeping self about the process of him turning 30 
and realizing that he wasn't really living his life for himself. He was living his life in the shadows always and and living in the fulfillment of other people's expectations. And that's something that resonated with me because that's exactly what I spent the first 26 of my 26 years of my life doing. And you reach that point of knowing that that's not what you want, but not knowing how to change it. And so his book is, is a deep dive into how he did that and how he kind of, he went on, he went traveling. He rode a bicycle from the North west of the u.s from oregon all the way down to patagonia in uh, argentina and he you know he chronicles that and chronicles the fact that what you discover along the way more than anything is 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 yourself you have time to think and when you have time to think and distance between you and what feels like your former life a lot of very interesting things happen mm-hmm. and um i loved i loved that book i loved his self-reflection and his questioning of who am I and 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 am I happy with who I am yeah beautiful book so I highly recommend it it had a very big impact on me and yeah I will definitely check it (laughs) and who has been your soul who has inspired you I for this one I don't have one Mm. name I don't have one group But for me, it's very much linked kind of to what I just said, which is for me, it's anybody who has inspired inspired change, whether that's large or whether that's small, whether that's within yourself or outside of yourself. For me, the salt is the people who ask, who dare to ask themselves those larger questions. Who am I? Who do I want to be? What do I want? And am I happy with the answers that I have to those questions? And if I'm not, what am I willing to do about it? I think that those are the things that make our individual lives so impactful. And those are the, those are the people that have impacted me is the people that you see making decisions in the knowledge that it's for themselves. It's not for anybody else because you get one life and it's yours to do with what you can. And so if you're not happy with it, if you're not happy with who you are, I think that the most courageous thing you can do is try and find yourself and try and find out who it is that you want to be um, and to, to create the space for yourself with that. Um, so for me, that's, that's what I always think of, but it's tricky because then I don't, of course, have like a specific name. I have many names that kind of float through my mind And also many conversations, you know, who inspires me is also just people who I speak to mm-hmm. who are vulnerable enough to tell me that they're asking themselves these questions. And maybe they don't have the answers yet. Maybe they're completely still lost. But that in and of itself is also inspiring because I think that every single person, every single person and every single person's experiences have the capacity to inspire. You don't need to be the leader of a country. You don't need to be rich or, or, or fulfilling these kind of standard ideas of success to be inspiring because each of us inspires each other every single day. Um, and you and have I think been, that that's where you find it. Yeah. And you've been very inspiring today. Very much. <laughs> and, these, so. and these conversations inspire me too. You know, it's, it's, 
it's it's lovely to hear that and and I appreciate that so thank you but these conversations make me inspired and make me think and I leave here again with having learned having met a new person and having gotten a bit of insight into some of your experiences and how you see these different issues and that is food for thought for me and so I think that one of the things one of the biggest disservices we do to ourselves um, as humans is that we kind of think that we are so small and insignificant and we are in the grand scheme mm-hmm. of the universe we mm-hmm. are and that I love I mm-hmm. love how insignificant I am but in each other's lives we are so significant and so everybody listening to this podcast everybody who's ever encountered anyone, has inspired in ways that they that we have no idea and i love that so much we are so unbelievably um um uh, unaware of our individual impacts in society and i find that a fascinating condition of kind of the human the human experience <laughs> wonderful know? i love starting my day with what you just said even though my day started a bit different as i told you earlier but it's another story <laughs> but yes 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 Yeah. Wonderful. And maybe you already answered the question, to whom do you want to pass the salt and what do you want to say to them? Um, who I would pass the salt to is everybody listening. And what I would say is, you know, try and find the, the courage to ask yourself the questions that you're currently not daring to ask. And, and you know, as I kind of just mentioned, that's, that's the questions of, who am I? And, and, and am I happy? What do I still want from my life? And what am I willing to do to get that? And when I ask that, um, people often think like, oh, she must mean like how many millions of euros mm-hmm. I want to earn or how many, um, um, travels I want to go on or, or the house I want to buy, but it's not, it doesn't even have to be that. Do you want to dance? You know, do you want to learn how to dance? why haven't you, you know, do you, do you want to try yoga, but you're afraid of being the only person in the room who's never done yoga before? I've, I've been there. I also don't know what I'm doing. And guess what? There's other people in the, in the room who don't know either. It can be simple, small things like that. What do you want out of your life? And what are you willing to do for it? And, and what reflection are you ready to engage in, in order to let yourself live your most authentic life and to let yourself embrace who you are and what you are and where you are. Um, so I think that that's, that's what I, that's kind of what I always um, want to leave people with is, is give yourself, give yourself the space to actually engage with yourself and to ask yourself things and to dream and to let yourself pursue those dreams And while doing all of that, give yourself grace. Above all else, give yourself grace because we can, we are too harsh on ourselves, um, too harsh with ourselves, too hard on ourselves. Um, we do have these kind of um, nasty conversations in our minds about not being good enough. And, and we're all good enough. We're doing the best we can in the moments we can. And so while you fill your life, this one wonderful life you have gotten um, with the things that you want to do. Give yourself grace. 
when things maybe don't go your way or when you feel you're not doing good enough because you're always just doing the best you can with what you know in that moment and what you have in that moment. Thank you. Do you have a question for me? I would love to know who, I would love to know your favorite book. And I would love to know if there, with the question, who is your salt, whether you have one specific name and whether that changes. So I think that's interesting too. The people, mm. the people who, who shape us also change over the years. Mm -hmm. Maybe I go with that question uh, first. Uh, it was Frida Kahlo for many, many years. I mm. encountered her when I was 14 And uh, it was before having all the internet, social media, you know, before she became that pop culture face, let's say. Yeah. Um, I could identify a lot with her pain. Um, mm. I was very drawn to her and I'm still today, you will see in my house in Amsterdam, there will be something from her here in Greece as well. People, people know they will give me stickers, magnets with, with her face or uh, people know. I was drawn to her pain. I was drawn to her strength. I was drawn to her breaking borders, breaking binaries, um, being a rebel, being a revolutionary. I'm not into paintings at all. I have <laughs> not much of an idea about art, but I love her paintings. I was attached to her. I mean, I still am. Her hair, the color of her hair, how she looks. Um, so many things. But the first thing that that I was drawn to her was her pain. Mm. And that is something that changed. I'm, I'm still in love with Frida, but I've detached myself a little bit from the pain because yeah. I don't live in that pain anymore, which I used yeah. to do for a long time. It doesn't define me anymore. You know, I have worked on that. I have changed my life. So when I look at Frida now, I look at her differently. She's still a She was a big part of me and she still is. Sounds very weird. I never met her. But <laughs> I don't attach anymore to that pain. Yeah. Um, so that, that your question was, was good that you say how this has changed. So now I have, I have many people that have inspired me, of course. And, and every, you inspired me just right now with so many things that you said. If I had to name some people, I would say Maya Angelou. Um, mm. She inspired me a lot. Uh, Audrey Lorde. When I'm done mm -hmm. with my master's, I want to read a lot more from her and about her. Um, she, I'm really fascinated by her. And um, yeah, many other people. I, I made also a post on Instagram once about it. Of course, also my mom, my dad, you know, always this cliche kind of answers. Um, Michael Jordan. Um, <laughs> th there is a, there's a basketball player, Yanis Adetokumbo. He's uh, a Greek Nigerian. He's, he actually now became again the MVP player in the NBA. He's playing for the Milwaukee Bucks who, who just won. And his story is so inspiring. And every time I hear him, I read him, I see him, I have tears in my eyes. And it's somebody that I tell my kids about because his life was so tough in Greece. He was an undocumented mm. migrant. His mother was selling CDs in the streets. He had one pair of sneakers and his brother, they had to share those sneakers if they wanted to train in the basketball field. And he went through a lot in Greece, but he had people who believed him, who stood by him. And he's now at the top of the top and he's still that humble person and he inspires and gives um, back to people. He doesn't forget the community where he comes from, his roots. Um, he's a believer. He's uh, so many things, you know, he's a father and he's also somebody that has inspired me. I'm saying 
I'm talking a lot about him right now because it's very recent that this happened. Yeah. And um, sounds fascinating though. Yeah. Maybe I will stop here, but th th there are a lot of people, but it's also this, I'm, I love people. I love meeting people. I love talking to them every day. I have an inspiration from somebody, not only yeah. somebody new, but also somebody that I know. And my favorite book. Uh, I have many. I had that question actually in my last podcast, <laughs> but yeah, I will just still answer it. So Sara Ahmed, Living a Feminist Life. It's a book um, I always go back to when I'm looking for some answers. Yeah, it's it's a book that I really like. Purple Hibiscus by Chimamanda Negosi Adichie. Oh, yeah. This is also a good one. Very sad, but beautiful. Um, in the past, I read a book. I will say some other books, not to repeat myself from last time, uh, called Vagina. I don't remember anymore the author, Naomi. I don't remember her surname. I'm, I'm sorry about that, but... It's a huge book about the vagina. And okay. um, I was reading it on a plane at that time. I was working and I was traveling a lot. And of course, people were looking at me reading a book that's called Vagina. But it was, uh, yeah, it was very good. Also made a change for me. There's another book called The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein. It's more about world politics, the system we live in, the different catastrophes that are happening. So these are some books that I like. And I have more, but I will stop I have, now here. I have some reading to do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, yes. So yeah, these are these are my answers to your questions. I love and, that. And um, thank, thank you for asking. And yeah, thank you for this beautiful, inspiring, and amazing conversation with you. And I always honor a woman at the end of my podcast. And today I want to honor Sojourner Truth because of what we discussed. She's a, she was a formerly enslaved woman and human rights activist who in 1851 delivered a speech at the Women's Rights Convention in Akron, Ohio, in which she stated, ain't I a woman? And through her speech, we can say that she kind of broke the idea of what women, women meant at the time. She dismantled the category women by uncovering the discrepancy between her life as an African-American woman and the features attributed to women. Because at that time, and we discussed it today, and I, 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 it's still there today, mainstream feminism has historically centered the experiences of white women. And the, the, the rights these women were fighting for, Sojourner Truth could not identify with. And she wasn't even part of it. So there were also women who didn't want her to speak in that moment, but she did it. And um, it goes back to what we discussed earlier, how important it is to take an intersectional perspective because there are women out there for them working or having access to the workplace is not connected to being liberated because they had to work all their life. They didn't have a choice. And not only that, they were slaves. So for them, work had a completely different meaning. And these are things that are very important. And you could say she was actually an intellectual with what she did. She made an intervention saying, I'm also a woman, but you're not including me and you're not including my pain, my suffering, my fights. And I want to honor her today. And um, yes, so also for us to reflect, you know, we need to look at race, class, ability, gender, sexuality, location, where somebody is living. Is somebody living in a war zone or is somebody living in a bubble like Amsterdam? And um, yeah, th there's no universal category of women, you know, it doesn't exist. <laughs> so I want to honor her 
for her intervention and she's still so meaningful and um, yeah, she's still present. She's still an inspiration for us. Absolutely. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you very, very much. Um, I will upload your information, of course, on my website and Instagram. And I want to thank everybody for listening. And if you've been enjoying SALT, please consider rating the show on Apple Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you could share it on your social media because it helps to spread this important message to bring new listeners and yeah, to make, to make a change. And of course, I forgot that and I will say it now, you can also get involved with Neighborhood Feminists, either as a volunteer or as a donor. Um, and it's good to visit um, yeah, either Nicole's Instagram, I will of course publish it, um, or the website of Neighborhood Feminists and then see how you can help, how you get involved. Or as Nicole also said at the beginning, if you don't want to get involved with Neighborhood Feminists, go to your nearest shelter and see if you can drop menstrual product there. And yes, I want to finish with this. I don't know if you want to add anything. I just want to say thank you so much for having me. This was um, lovely. Um, and I feel energized and, and as I said, inspired and like I have, again, new things to think about. Um, so I love that. Um, thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. And I hope that everyone enjoys it. And I do want to reiterate that um, I would love to be um, that safe space if anyone has questions or things you want to talk about. Um, you know, I, you will have my details. You can contact me um, and you can definitely check out Neighbored Feminists as well. That's just neighboredfeminists.com. Uh, so, yeah, thank you so much for having me today, Stella. <laughs> Something that is loved is never lost. I'm Stella Salieri and this is Salt the Podcast. Salt the Podcast. Salt the Podcast.